2 Samuel chapter 24. Tonight we'll conclude our study in 2 Samuel together as we wrap up this last chapter. The events here that we look at really describe another time in David's life, really when we see him experience uh, some real heights of victory and some really great decisions, but those great decisions as well are kind of balanced out and contrasted. We'll see with some bad decisions that David made as well. And we've seen this as we've looked through predominantly the life of David in these studies through First and Second Samuel, a lot of great emphasis given to David, this incredible man of God, but yet was a man still that had flaws and weaknesses. And David had a lot of great triumphs spiritually but certainly he made his fair share of mistakes he was uh, someone who had shortcomings just like you and I it's probably why we can relate to him and why we connect with David's life because we uh, can some ways associate with him uh, it tells us here of an event that happened uh, during this time probably at the latter years of David's reign uh, at this time he's probably maybe somewhere uh, I'd say maybe about in his 60s or so chronologically at this time it's prior to his death we'll see as we get into first kings the next book we'll be moving into that we just get the end of david's life and his death there and his son solomon will then be taking over the throne for him but look with me in verse one we're told there again the anger of the lord was aroused against notice israel that is god's people the jews against the israelites nationally and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, uh, important to notice here, as David gives this order to go out and to really, we'll see, take a census of the people to go and number the people of Israel, a few things we want to take note of, particularly by way of context and kind of just to try and understand what is and isn't going on here. Uh, it tells us there in verse one that at this time, as at prior times, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So for some reason, and we are not told, the Bible is silent, for some reason, God was displeased with his people. God was actually, the Bible says, angry with Israel nationally. It doesn't say God's anger was aroused against David. It says that God's anger was aroused against the people of Israel as a nation for something that they were guilty of that aroused the anger of God towards them as a nation and a people group. Now, could be because of maybe the rejection of God's king. Uh, remember, we see that happen twice. First of all, with David's son, uh, Absalom, when there was the rebellion that took place, when Absalom rebelled against his father and usurped the throne, and there were some, many who rallied behind Absalom initially, and a select few, remember, remained faithful to David. And then after that, there was another short rebellion that was squashed quite a bit more quickly that even took place after that. So we know on at least two recorded occasions that God's people, the nation of Israel, rejected God's king. And certainly that could be one of the reasons or the reason here that it says that God's anger was aroused towards them. Certainly we know ultimately that is something that arouses the anger and displeasure of God when we reject his king in the fullest sense, not with David, but ultimately in the son of David, God's son, Jesus Christ. And it was when God's king, the king of kings, Jesus came to the Jews uh, many, many centuries later 
Even there it says that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. And they rejected Jesus, the Jews did then, who was God's king. And so certainly any rejection of Jesus Christ, who is God's Messiah, God's king sent, is going to arouse the displeasure of God and the anger of the Lord. Uh, in the same way, if we reject Jesus as God's king uh, for our lives spiritually. So it could be that, that was the rejection of, of God's king that he was angry about. Uh, it could be just any other thing. Their guilt of idolatry, their immoral practices as a people that they were participating in, that were dishonoring God and violating the word of God and its moral and spiritual standards. Uh, certainly Israel throughout history we see as this point and going forward will chronically be guilty of these things many times, rejecting the Sabbath day commandments, idolatry, immorality. So it could be anything, but we clearly want to recognize that these events as they unfold in this chapter are in direct connection to the fact that it seems that God is wanting to bring discipline against the nation, that there is some judicial act of discipline or judgment that God is bringing against the nation because of their rebellion, disobedience, or rejection towards him in some way. And these things become the consequence. Now, what we see happen here is God wanting to execute these things because of being displeased with his people, he allows for David's failure as their national leader to basically be the thing which is the means of bringing about his discipline against them nationally. So God allows their primary leader, their king David, to make mistakes to do things that are wrong, God, in a sense, allows David to exercise some of his ideas that run contrary to what God's best or ideal would be for them as a people. And as the result of that, through those things, God actually uses that as the means of bringing discipline and judgment against the nation itself. And we see the way that that happens here is it says that he moved David against them to say, go and number Israel. Verse two says, so the king said to Joab, his commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, the idea is from north to south geographically, and count the people that David says, I may know the number of the people. Now, as David issues a census at this point, and this is going to cause God's displeasure, the fact that David requests this census or numbering of the people, it's important to keep in mind kind of what's going on here because it almost could kind of get a little bit confusing. And here's where knowing the Bible in its entirety becomes very helpful because the best commentary on Scripture is what? Scripture. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we basically have the parallel account of this same story written somewhat from a different angle by the Holy Spirit. Just like in the Gospels, uh, we have the record of the life, uh, the events, the birth, the, the ministry, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, all given to us by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. All of them complement one another, but just like many people who may be standing around on a particular street corner when a, a accident happens at that intersection, they all see the same event, but each one of them kind of fills in maybe a different detail. None of their stories contradict 
The idea is that each one kind of adds something of what they saw from their angle and their perspective. And just like the Gospels give us those complementary records uh, of many of the same stories repeated about Jesus' life and ministry and miracles and teachings, and we see some variations, but they all complement, we find the same thing happening in the Scripture. And First Chronicles records a lot of the life of David from a little bit different angle in the same way we get some of the same events and stories that we find here in First and Second Samuel. So First Chronicles giving us the parallel account of this same story tells us this, First Chronicles chapter 21, it tells us there, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So then David said to Joab, go and number the people. So uh, which is it? Here in Samuel's account, it says the Lord's anger was aroused and he moved David to say, go and number Israel and Judah. And the he is capitalized. Some and most, I would say better to say, believe that that's referring to, to God moved David. But then First Chronicles chapter 21 says Satan stood up in opposition to Israel and against David as their leader to try and bring harm and spiritual attack and that Satan was the one who persuaded or moved David to make this decision, putting these ideas in his mind and manipulating him to bring these events about. So which is it? Did, did, did Satan move him or did God move him? Well, in a sense, spiritually, you could fairly say to some degree both. Uh, from the perspective that what I believe is taking place, certainly God, it tells us in James 1, does not ever tempt us toward evil. So God never is the cause or the source. God would never tempt us to do what's evil for he himself is good and absent from all evil. God would never purposely cause us to do what's wrong. And it's not right to blame God for anything that happens wrong or anything that we do wrong. Well, God made me do it. Well, that, that, that's not true. James says that that's not true. That would be a contradiction. However, God in his goodness often is protecting us and preserving us from the ungodly, evil, unhealthy influences and temptations of Satan who's trying to rob, kill, and destroy our lives as the evil one. And God in his prerogative, if he chooses, for whatever reasons, can choose, if you would, to sort of pull back his preservation and his protective covering over our lives a bit and to sovereignly allow Satan to have a little bit of access into our lives. We see this in the book of Job where, remember, Job was a righteous man. Satan comes and he begins complaining. Well, yet the reason, reason he serves you is because you love him and you do everything for him. But, you know, he's, he's not really committed to you. And, and just give me a little bit of access into his life. And I promise you, give me a little bit of access, God, and he'll curse you to his face. And so God has to allow... By his sovereignty, he has to allow access to Job's life to which Satan brings some attack upon it. And we see the events there. But again, in the same way here, what I believe is happening is God wanting to bring a measure of discipline against the people nationally because his anger is aroused towards them. God pulls back, if you would, from his protective covering over King David's life as a servant of God. And he allows Satan to manipulate and persuade David's sinful nature as we all have and David in an act of weakness in his human nature and in his pride most likely here buys into the devil's suggestion 
and the devil manipulates his pride and so therefore he asks for this sentence so in a sense Satan is the one persuading David manipulating his heart and mind by God allowing this in the sovereignty of the situation that's taking place now he asks for a census he tells Joab go throughout the land count the people that I may know notice he says verse 2 the number of the people now important to understand there is nothing in and of itself that is wrong about a census. There are times in the Bible where God actually required himself a census or a numbering of the people. The whole book of numbers in the Old Testament is basically a large census to a great degree that God is asking of the people. So there's nothing inherently wrong about taking a census. The problem here is the reason that David is asking for the census, that there's something that he's wanting for himself to, to know for himself. Uh, it tells us this. Let me just read you one verse, may perhaps fill in a little bit of light here. Exodus chapter 30, verse 12 tells us this, that God's speaking to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 30, when you take the census of the people, the children of Israel, of their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, listen, that there may be no plague among them when you number them, which is exactly almost somewhat prophetically of what's going to happen here. There's going to be a plague that's going to come upon the nation because of the numbering of the people and not going about it God's way or not going about it because God is the one for his purposes that's requesting the census or prescribing it by his command to David in this situation. Again, the idea is that the census was to be used for God and for God's purposes, not to be used as some human means for a man to make himself feel good about himself because his army is so large or to feel prideful in some way because his army was bigger than the other armies of the surrounding nation. And this is a time in David's life when he's in great prosperity. There's been a lot of military success. He's had great victories. The nation has expanded. So this is a time in David's life of success and prosperity. And David is asking for this census, not because God told him to ask for it, so that somehow ransom money could be collected or, or atonement money for the temple. It has nothing to do with that. This is all about David's human nature and his own sinful propensities. Either one of two things. Either this is directed because of the pride that's going on inside of David's heart at this point as a leader and as a man, or maybe by fear. Either fear in the sense that David is getting a little nervous or insecure, so he wants to reassure himself that they're safe and they're strong as a people and that no foreign nation could conquer them. So he wants to get the numbers in so that he can feel confident and that he could not be fearful anymore. And maybe it's his own insecurity that's driving that. But again, rather than depending upon God as his protection and his defense, he's trying to get the numbers in so he can say, okay, we got enough resources. The bank account's big enough. I mean, all the defense systems are in place. So, okay, I mean, we've done enough. I think we can defend ourselves rather than saying God's our defense and God's our protection. Or the error could be here more likely, I think, pride. That David at a time of great success and prosperity falls prey to the danger of success and prosperity in that he's kind of starting to believe his own press clippings a little bit and he wants to just hear the great numbers. 
you know, the company's turning out great numbers. Get me the numbers. I want to hear the numbers. Go count the people so that I might know exactly how many men we have in our standing army. And again, to just kind of feel good and confident about himself and his great accomplishments. Again, success and prosperity can be a very dangerous thing uh, because it can cause us to make great errors in pride. So David makes this request and it's the reason, the motive behind it that causes the problem and displeasure towards God, which he disciplines. In verse 3, you can tell that because notice Joab, who was not always the most godly man himself, Joab, David's chief commander of the army, when he hears this order, he says, verse 3, respectfully but honestly to David, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? So notice, Joab automatically has a real sense of reluctancy about what David, his king, has just asked him to do. Automatically, again, and this is not the most spiritually sensitive man, Joab, but he's wise enough and sensitive enough to realize, I don't think this is a good thing. I really don't think this would be something that would even be pleasing to the Lord. And, and David, I sense something about your desire for this isn't right. I, I think maybe you're being misguided by your thoughts or feelings or emotions here. And again, just the sinful tendencies in our humanity. So here Joab expresses to David his reluctancy and he kind of challenges David's idea. And he confronts David's desire and he says to him, look, may God add a hundred times more and may you see it with your own eyes. May he add a hundred times more than there already is. But he's saying, why is my Lord the King desiring such a thing? He's trying to warn and to caution David to reconsider and to rethink before he proceeds with this. And you know, I have found in my life that the Lord is always, always faithful whether it's through the word of you know, a, a fellow friend or a brother or sister in Christ or my own spouse or, you know, or whether it's through speaking through the word of God as I'm just reading it on a regular daily basis, that when I'm about to do something dumb or something that I just shouldn't do or that's not in accordance with God's will, the Lord always, 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 it seems to be faithful because he doesn't want to see us fail. Is faithful to shoot, you know, kind of fire a shot across the bow and to kind of say, nah, you know, are you sure about that? And, and he kind of just puts up the blinker light to, and somehow, some way, he kind of just before we step into things, seeks to, to warn us and to caution us. And that's what's going on here. There's a sense of reluctancy and it's, it's expressed. He's kind of confronted on his idea or he's challenged. And I don't know, maybe that's something that you've experienced recently. Maybe you're kind of heading in a direction or you got an idea or a desire and, and maybe somebody's kind of expressed a little reluctance here, kind of challenged your idea or, or confronted maybe what you're thinking about doing. And, and maybe that in some ways could be a uh, in a sense, a, a caution from the Lord that that's not an appropriate way to go. But verse four, notice it says here, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of a king to count the people of Israel. So notice, David's ultimately the final authority. He's the king. And rather than 
listen to and embrace the counsel that has been offered to him, he chooses to neglect it and basically just to refuse it and to push forward through the blinker light, through the red stop sign. He just pushes on and says, no, listen, I, this is what I want to do. Don't challenge my idea. Please go do this. It's an order and he kind of sends him out. And I think this is a good reminder to all of us. You know, we don't have to be a king, certainly, but there is always a choice to be made whenever we're challenged about something. Whenever somebody confronts us or maybe questions us or expresses some reluctance, says, do you really want to do that? Or do you think that's the best idea? Or maybe they just you know, throw out a, 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 you know, a, something that expresses a little concern or warning and they kind of challenge us a little bit on an idea to maybe make us just think a second time or think it through before we pursue it. At the end of the day, because we're free moral agents and we have free will, there's always a choice to be made when you're challenged, are you going to listen to it, embrace it, maybe hit the pause button, pray and think it through a little more? Uh, or are you just going to put your foot on the accelerator and say, I don't care. This is my idea. It's what I want to do. It's what my desire is. And you just push forward ahead anyway. And that's a choice that we all have the freedom to make both for the good or the bad. Well, David here chooses not to embrace this. And usually a problem is coming when we reject good advice. <laughs> It's kind of like two and two is four there. Reject good advice, you're probably going to have a problem. It's just kind of the nature of how things... And so here David rejects their advice and their wise counsel. He sends them out. Verse five says, And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Arar on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, and toward Jazir. And then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahatim Hadshi. And then to Dan, Jaon, and around to Sidon. So the, this, the picture here is them moving around geographically through the different areas of Israel. Again, from north to south, as we read, Dan to Beersheba. Just going around, taking the census of the people. And verse 7 says, They came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, the border areas. And then it says, uh, they went down south Judah as far as Beersheba. And verse 8, when they had gone through all the land, they came back to Jerusalem where King David was, notice, at the end of, take note, nine months and 20 days. So this census process took literally almost 10 months. So close to a year this process took to do this census. Now, is that just because of the extent of it and all that it involved that it just took that long? That's possible. Or was it because Joab and all the commanders and people working with him are kind of dragging their feet because they're thinking we should not be doing this <laughs> and they're just disgruntled and not wanting. We don't know. But, but keep in mind, this lasts for almost 10 months before the numbers come in and the nail in the coffin is kind of driven in. And I think the picture here to some degrees is a good reminder to all of us how God allows for there to be really a, a lengthy period of time, a, a, a long time span in order to some degree, I think, for David to realize what he's chosen to do and to perhaps maybe even repent at the sixth month and say, squash the census, man. Before I go all the way through with it and get to the altar, cut it, stop it, end it, put an end to it and... And so God allows this patient time span and, and God's gracious like that, is he not? 
where he allows sometimes like a patient span of time. And fortunately, sometimes we misinterpret God's patience for approval or endorsement or allow. And, and here God allows these 10 months to go by giving, I believe, David a chance to realize, maybe repent before he takes things the full distance and the census culminates. Unfortunately, David allows it to go all the way full circle. Ten months later, they return back to Jerusalem. Verse 9, Joab gives the sum of the number of the people to the king that were in Israel, and the numbers were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So about 1.3 million people. Not too bad at this point in time. Those are pretty good numbers as far as how many people there were. And it seems predominantly this wasn't just the number of the population, but the number of military, the number of fighting men. Which again, what this was is David unfortunately here is putting his confidence in those things rather than putting his confidence in the Lord. And David should have been depending upon the Lord and he's moved away from depending upon the Lord and now he's depending upon the arm of flesh. He's depending upon anything and everything else that he has, he's done, is at his disposal and dependence upon anything other than the Lord is a bad thing to depend upon. And so David here takes these numbers because again whether for fear or for his own pride or whatever it is his confidence has moved away from where it's supposed to be which is fully reliant upon the Lord depending upon him and as the numbers come in look what happens instantaneous it almost seems verse 10 as David hears these things we're told in the very next verse verse 10 and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people so David said to the Lord I have sinned greatly. Notice his language. In what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now I want you to take notice here. In the midst of David's failures, and as I said, David had his fair share of failures in life. This is a man who the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. David loved the Lord. He had a relationship with the Lord, but he also made his fair share of mistakes. But the thing that set David apart as well is the tremendous humility that David had when he did fail. And I think we see here very clearly in verse 10, the work of the Spirit of God in the time of error of one of his servants. David was one of his servants, and the fact that David sinned against God was no different from him that he quickly always repented back to God. It was the difference really that marked between King Saul and King David because King Saul to some degrees didn't even do some of the moral grievous errors. I mean, King Saul didn't you know, uh, you know, commit adultery. He didn't murder people. I mean, King Saul did some wrong things but from our human perspective, we may say, wow, David's stains are much greater. But the problem was is that Saul would never confess his sin. He never humbly take ownership of it. He would never acknowledge that he was wrong. And he would never repent and turn back to God sincerely and look for forgiveness and to make things right. David had some pretty big sins, but David was quick and big on confession and repentance and making things right as quickly as possible when he got out of relationship with God 
And here we see David, again, humbly yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in the time of error. Notice right away, verse 10, there's conviction of his sin and error and it grips his heart. And you know, when we do what's wrong, whatever our thing may be, and we push past the red light and we enter into something and we maybe for a, a, a one-time experience or even for a season, for 10 months like Dave, we, we're engaged in something that we should not be. We're outside of the will of God. We're doing something we shouldn't. The wonderful thing is that the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction in our lives. And to cause our heart to be arrested where, where we have a sense of, of our heart condemns us in our conscience and we realize, hey, I, what I did was wrong. And no excuses and justifications. Again, that was what Saul's business was. It was always, well, the people did this or it was because of that. David's attitude was always so different. It was what we read here. David would simply say, I have sinned in what I have done, take away the iniquity of your servant for I have done very foolishly. David just took ownership of it. And boy, when the Holy Spirit of God is working in our heart to bring conviction when we've done something wrong, it is humility that says, I'm wrong. What I did was wrong. I made mistakes. I acted like a fool. I, you know, I, I've sinned against God I, and, and, and I take ownership of it. I acknowledge it. There's no excuse making. There's no justification for why we did it or why we didn't do so. It's just a complete ownership. And here, this is what the Holy Spirit comes to do, to bring conviction to the human heart. So David here senses conviction and that conviction, when responded to properly, is the Holy Spirit's bringing it about in a heart. If a heart is humble, it then leads afterwards to confession. And that's what you see David doing. Confession is just to say the same thing that God's word says, to own up and acknowledge. And David says, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Lord, take away, forgive, he says, the iniquity, the bent of your servant for I have done very foolishly again he's seeking to make things right between him and God and David here displays a beautiful thing because this is what humility really looks like folks humility in a person looks like not somebody who's perfect in their performance they never make mistakes they never do anything wrong quite honestly that's the furthest thing from humility when we're trying to give to people the impression that we never make mistakes, we, we got it all together, and we're trying to almost keep this facade of that our life is so clean and, every, and everything about us is just put together and kept together. There's almost a part of that that's not only prideful, but rather dangerous. This is humility. David makes a mistake, as we all make our mistakes at times, but humility is when a person makes a mistake, when they do, how quick are they to admit it and to make it right? That's humility. That when you make a mistake, you're quick to admit it and you do whatever it takes to make it right. And this is what David was about. And this great example of David for us here, he admits it, he confesses it, and he wants to make it right, starting out by making it right between him and God, asking for God's mercy and forgiveness in the midst of his failure and sin. Verse 11 says that after David confessed and said this as he's convicted, when David arose in the morning, notice seems the next day, notice how quickly God responded with, with mercy to help this all kind of uh, be dealt with. But this is where we're going to see God bringing his judicial discipline amidst David's consequence of his failure. When David arose in the morning, the 
word of the Lord came from the prophet Gad to him, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord. I offer you three things. Now, David was probably hoping that was going to be like a lollipop, a vacation after the bad you know, season you've been through. But that, that's not what it's going to be. Forgiveness is instantaneous. Restoration is a process. And consequences still come. And these are now going to be the consequences, unfortunately, of not only David's sin, but again, David's role as a leader magnified the consequences to whom much is given, much is required. And that, that pertains to as well the role of responsibility we have, the effect that we have upon others. And David's a, a national leader. So I offer you three things, God says, tell him. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So basically God's going to say, David, I'm going to let you pick your punishment. David, I, there's going to be a consequence for this. And David doesn't even know, ultimately, I don't think that the consequence is connected as God's controlling everything to God even bringing judgment and discipline upon the nation for their sin and wrongdoing that's angered God. I, th I think David in some ways is clueless in regards to that. David's failure is a, is a separate thing, but God's just using it in conjunction to his divine purposes, dealing with his servant and dealing with the people collectively and nationally at the same time. So he says, David... I'm going to let you pick. Choose one of these three options that I may do to you as your spanking in a sense. So he came to David, Gad did, and told him, shall you have seven years of famine to come into your land? So seven years of struggle where they have lack of resources, you know, economic downturn, and the seven years of famine would cause them, unfortunately, then to have to depend upon foreign nations, which is not usually a good thing, especially when you're in a desperate time of famine. So that would involve that. So that could be a consequence. Seven years of famine on the land. Or you shall flee three months before your enemy. So the idea is for three months, they would be defeated militarily. They'd be losing battles. They would be overcome and sort of conquered and controlled by their enemies. Uh, and that would be a very painful thing as someone else would basically be in control of their lives. And David wasn't used to failing in military battles as well. Or third option, shall there be three days of plague in your land? That is some plague that God would orchestrate and allow by his, again, divine choice to come upon the land that would plague the land for three days. Now, keep in mind, those three days of plague could potentially affect David, his own family, his own household. It's not going to, you know, if it's a plague or a sickness, you know, a bubonic plague or something like that, that doesn't show any partiality whether you are a peasant or whether you live in the palace, if it's a sickness or a plague. If there was a famine in the land, guess what? The palace probably won't suffer because the palace probably has plenty of resources. So the famine probably wouldn't have affected David and his family. Military defeat, probably the last person that's going to suffer any hurt or harm is going to be the king because the military is going to do everything they can to protect and keep their king alive. But the plague, that really was the greatest risk to David and to himself, three days of plague. But that would be the thing God was in complete control of where military defeat, the enemies uh, and people of the land would be attacking them and having a control over them. Famine, the foreign nations would control their food supply and so forth. The plague, God would be sovereign over. David, understand, knew these things. So God says, consider and see what 
answer I should take back to him who sent me. So the prophet says, David, here are your three options. God told me to give them to you. Tell me what you want me to go back and tell God. What do you want to choose for your punishment? So David said to Gad, I am in great distress. None of those options sounded good. I'm probably he was thinking to himself, is there a none of the above fourth option? You know, can I get D? None of the above or right in my own, you know. But again, quite interesting that God actually allows him to decide here. I'm in great distress. Here's David's answer. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now, you might think, well, well, that's not very specific. Why didn't he just say famine, defeated by the enemies or plague? He doesn't answer specifically, but, but we need to realize in David's language there, he knew exactly what he meant and Gad the prophet and certainly God himself who knows all things understood exactly what David was asking for, which was option three, the plague, because that would be the thing that God was in complete control of. The famine, foreign countries would be able to control and manipulate the people during the seven years of famine. The, the military defeat, foreign enemies who were cruel and harsh could, could control things for three months in their lives and would kind of be... But the plague was something God would decide, God would determine, and God would have complete control over from a divine perspective alone. So David widely says, you know what? If anybody's got to judge, punish, or discipline me... I'll take God's. And notice his reasoning. He says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord that is not the hand of men. And the reason David comes up with this, he says, for his mercies are great. What he's saying is, God is so much more merciful than people are. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we as fallen people that are flawed and failures and do wrong things, we're oftentimes a lot less merciful than God is to people. And so David says, if anybody needs to punish me or judge me for what I've done wrong, he said, I would rather let God do it because God's good and God's merciful and he's compassionate. Don't let men be in control of me. Let me fall into the hand of God. I'll take the plague. And again, even offering there as well, again, I think owning this, the plague could potentially come against David and his own family. Now, interesting to see it doesn't. Which goes to show again that God's using these events, though he's judging David, to really judge the nation as we're going to see, as it said in verse 1. Because notice what happens. Verse 15 says, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from morning to appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, north to south, again, 70,000 men of the people died. Now please don't gloss over that. 70,000 people. 70,000 people died in some kind of plague that the Lord allowed to come upon the land to begin to strike the people. I mean, that's staggering. I mean, when 9-11 happened, that was a few thousand American lives that were lost. 70,000 people? I mean, that's staggering to think about. The effects of sin, the effects of the sin of a nation against their God. The effects of David's mistake and as a leader. Don't tell me that a leader's decisions can't have major impact and consequence upon the people that they lead. And they have influence. 70,000 people died. And it says, verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it. Keep in mind, capital city, that's where David and his family are. At that point, here's where David was right. 
His mercies are great. At that point, the Lord relented, turned away from the destruction and said to the angel who is destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. So notice, judgment is something that's difficult for God. As God was having to do this judicially in his righteousness, at a certain point, it, he couldn't handle it more than a few days. He said to the angel who was carrying this out, that's enough. I can't take it anymore. And his mercy so impacted him as the merciful, loving God. He said, that's enough. Stop. Restrain your hand. And he instantly puts an end to this plague. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor, notice, of Arun of the Jebusite. That's where he was noticed at. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely, again, David says, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Now, again, David's not aware of what's going on in God's heart. But he says, Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. That shows you that this man was a true leader. I mean, it's hard for the people as a shepherd caring for them as sheep and, and, and David in a sense again not aware of the full picture only knowing of his own sin and his own mistake he says God these poor people and all he's knowing about is his own sins and mistake and he's thinking look Lord what have these people done and he says let it come upon me he's inviting God to bring the plague if necessary upon himself and his own family to take responsibility for this he says let your hand I pray come against me and my father's house but again, God's in the mode of mercy now. He's not looking to do anything else but bring forgiveness and reconcile this problem at this point. So Gad came that day to David, verse 18, and said, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun the Jebusite. Again, remember, a threshing floor is a flat area where they would separate the wheat from the chaff and they would throw it up in the air as there was a part of the harvesting process and as the wind would blow, that which was of substance would settle back onto the ground and that which was the chaff, the worthless stuff, would, would be blown aside or blown away in the wind. That's what a threshing floor was. It was a flat area. And this is a flat area there in Jerusalem, a threshing floor owned by a man named Aruna in that day. And God says, go there, establish an altar, a place of blood sacrifice as a command that I'm giving to you to make resolution for this sin. So David, according to the word of God, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went and bowed before the king reverently with his face, notice, to the ground as any servant would. And Aruna said to him, why is my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, I've come, notice, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar here to the Lord, that the plague, notice, may be withdrawn from the people. So he informs him why he came. He says, listen, the Lord gave me command that in order for this plague to be withdrawn, to be stopped, I've been given a commission in obedience to God to on your threshing floor build there an altar for blood sacrifice to make sacrifice to the Lord so that as a result of that blood sacrifice, the plague can be withdrawn. So he says, I need to buy your threshing floor. Now notice what happens here. Aruna said to King David in response, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for the burnt sacrifice and the threshing implements for the yokes of oxen, for the wood, so he would have fuel. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king, 
And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Now, uh, Aruna shows his good heart here. As the king comes to him, he wants to show honor and respect towards his king. David was a good king. The account in First Chronicles tells us that Aruna actually saw this angel over his threshing floor as well, just like David did, and saw this spiritual being, and he realizes something is going on as well. So as David comes and says, listen, God spoke to me. This is the, revolu the, the resolution. I need to build an altar of sacrifice on your threshing floor there. He says, I've come to buy it. Aruna says, buy it? Are you kidding me? Anything I can do to help, man. <laughs> and he very generously Though this was of great value to him, this was his livelihood. It's basically like his property. It's like land. I mean, how much does some land go for in this area, especially go over to some of the shore locations? You know, the land is worth way more than the houses themselves are. So this is a valuable piece of real estate, plus all his animals, his, you know, uh, threshing implements, the yokes for the oxen. Look, he says, you don't have to pay me a penny. Just take it. And he wants to be generous, and he wants to give all this freely to David and help with the resolution of the situation. So again, being very kind, very generous, very giving, because he basically wants to give his king his absolute best to do what would please his king. Now, as this is offered, the problem, David says, verse 24, the king said to Runa, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David, notice, circle this word, please, bought. That is, he paid a price, real estate transaction, the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord as he was commanded. And then he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, blood sacrifices. So the Lord then heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn, important words, the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So notice, as Aruna wants to give this freely to David, the land, all the animals for the sacrifices, all the you know, farming instruments for wood and fuel, he wants to freely give it to David generously and graciously to help. The problem with that, from David's perspective, is that would then make things, listen, convenient and easy for David to obey God. That would make it very easy and very convenient for David to remove any real sacrifice from him personally to do what God asked of him or to please the Lord. It would offer to David, if you would, a convenient, easy form of worship. Now, most people would say, Hey, that's my kind of religion. Easy, convenient, cost me nothing, no sacrifice, requires nothing of me. Sign me up. Sign me up and get me a t-shirt. Because most human beings prefer worship and, and, and you know, service and pleasing God that involves no personal sacrifice, it costs us nothing. It requires nothing of us, of our time, energy, effort, and certainly not our money. You know? I mean, we, we would prefer this. But David's heart is totally opposite. Look what David says. He says, no, I will buy it from you for the price, for I will not offer burnt offerings, that is, obedient acts, worship, he says, to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. 
This is such a beautiful thing. You know, take it, meditate upon it this evening, tomorrow for your devotional time. David was not looking, hear me, he was not looking for the cheapest and the easiest way possible to please God. David was not looking for the cheapest and easiest way possible to please God in his life. He said, no, God's worthy of my sacrifice. If it doesn't cost me something, is it really something of meaning, of substance? Because see, David understood the reality that we all know, and that's this. We will make sacrifices for what's most important to us. We make sacrifices for everything. And typically the things you make the most sacrifices for in your life that's an indication of what's most important to you. And you can figure that out. What do you make the most sacrifices for? And love will put no cost upon sacrifice. That's how we can tell we love. So David equates this spiritually into his relationship with God. And he says, look, I'm not going to offer something to God that doesn't cost me something. I want to pay some cost. I want there to be some sacrifice on my end, something that it requires and costs me personally. David says, I want it to be that way. If I'm going to serve God, worship God, honor God, I, I want there to be some level of cost because then it's meaningful and it's an expression of my love and my devotion. And what a beautiful statement David makes here. And notice, as the result of him doing this, and it says for 50 shekels of silver, he buys the land he offers the sacrifices and it says the plague was withdrawn. Notice here, despite the mistakes that David made, some really wonderful things happen. Because this piece of real estate that David buys, the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, we know geographically, is the place called Mount Moriah. It's the same place where Abraham was asked to offer his son Isaac and he was willingly going to do it, but as a type of Christ, God stopped him and, and, and it says that God himself provided the lamb and, and, and it was the place where it foreshadowed how God would ultimately, like Abraham and Isaac, go through with the process of sacrifice because it's on the same area, Mount Moriah, where Golgotha would be, where Jesus ultimately would be sacrificed and given. Now, this is phenomenal to keep in mind because this is also where the temple would be built there. This is basically Mount Moriah. This is also the Temple Mount. First Kings chapter 22 tells us that this is the place where the temple was therefore built. Now, that tells us two things. Let me leave you with this. And, and please don't fade out. I'll be very brief. Number one, there is historical evidence right there that a Jew, in fact, the king of Israel, paid a price and a real estate transaction took place to purchase the Temple Mount. It's historical evidence. It was a real estate. David bought it. He bought it with a price. It belongs to the Jews. It belongs to Israel. And secondarily, notice that it says that God allowed these things to happen, and I think this is just another foreshadowing despite the mistakes, because it says that once David did this, then the plague was withdrawn. So whether it was with Abraham or this situation here, ultimately with Christ, the perfect picture, it was not until on Mount Moriah a blood sacrifice was made that the plague was withdrawn. And because of the sacrifice of Christ on this same spot 2,000 years ago, the plague of our sin of our guilt and the punishment we deserve has been withdrawn. 
because of the sacrifice of Christ. Shall we stand together?